Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Fomentabody. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Alice Marcus Craig. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we are Groundworks Inc. We design and build gardens in New York City and surrounding areas. And our show brings the culture to horticulture. So today we're going to talk about zoo horticulture. That's right. And we have an awesome guest, uh, Frank Pizzi. We met Frank at the Garden Writers Symposium in um, August in Pittsburgh. And we, as part of the GWA program, we got a private behind-the-scenes tour of the zoo and the zoo's green roof. And Frank was super warm and quirky. He has a great sense of humor, and his passion was amazing. So we're excited to have him, and we knew that we had to have him on the show. But first, we have to do the horticultural honor roll. Excellent. That's my cue. Okay. <laughs> I respond to cowbells. Um, That just says a lot about my heritage and (laughs) what I'm into. Okay, so today's honoree, of course, has to have something to do with with zoology, right? Sort of indirectly. Uh, The honoree is Anthony Huxley, who um, is a man who, without him knowing it, directly influenced my career path and, and my love of plants. Um, Anthony Huxley comes from a long line of distinguished and influential men of science and letters, starting with his great-grandfather, who was Thomas Henry Huxley. And he was an English biologist, and he was known at the time, in the 19th century, as Darwin's bulldog, because he he very strongly defended Charles Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, you know, at the time, which was very, very controversial. And then continuing with um, our honoree's father, Julian Huxley, who was the first director general of UNESCO. He was the secretary of the Zoological Society, and he was a co-founder of the World Wildlife Fund. So Anthony, our honoree, naturally spent a lot of time at the Zoological Society. Um, But unfortunately, he is long dead dead now. But I thought um, I found a really great obituary that was written um, about him by David Wheeler of the Guardian newspaper. And this is how he described Anthony Huxley's influence on the gardening and, and the horticulture world. He wrote this obituary shortly after Anthony Huxley's death on uh, January 4th, 1993. <clears throat> Anthony Julian Huxley, horticulturist, botanist, writer, and photographer, 
Born 2nd of December, 1920. He was the editor of Amateur Gardening from 1967 to 71. He was the general editor of the Royal Horticultural Society Dictionary of Gardening from 1988 to 1992. And he was the vice president of the Royal Horticultural Society in 1991. That... If that isn't enough credentials, I don't, I don't know what is. <laughs> Can but, you say resume? <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, his books, according to, the, um, according to this obituary, his books reflect an unquenchable interest in travel, as much for plants as for nature. Although at home, he remained a devoted committee man, journalist, editor, lecturer, and general horticultural factotum. Talents fully recognized by the Royal Horticultural Society's highest awards. He brought a botanist mind to the garden and indulged himself in the encyclopedic world of plants. Huxley wrote, co-wrote, or compiled almost 40 books. And what, one of the things that I found most interesting, in 1978, he published uh, something called Plant and Planet, which is um, this immensely readable exposition of the botanical kingdom and its essential bearing on all human activity. Just a little book. Just a little book. <laughs> it's, it's really what we do on the show, you know, <laughs> every week. Um, so this was exactly the sort of text and equivalent, per- perhaps, to David Attenborough's television programs, a scientific in approach yet accessible to the layman which has done so much to highlight global problems and focus necessary attention on them. He, Anthony, was in the vanguard of the conservation movement, being quick, for instance, to to discourage the plunder of wild bulbs in the wild. He once wrote an article about the acquisitive for this magazine called Hortus entitled leave the trowel at home, take camera instead, which sounded a timely warning in the acquisitive 1980s when botanical tours were becoming abundant. And he says, this is what Anthony Huxley says, patience is what needs exercising. And it is a pity that a handful of growers, mostly cactus and orchid fanciers, should find themselves lacking in this, continuing to create a demand for plants taken from the wild, end quote. So he was an amazing man. And the book, the way he came into my life was a book that he wrote called Green Inheritance. And he wrote that book um, with the World Wildlife Fund. And it, it really changed the way that I viewed plants forever. And, and it actually continues to inspire some of the ideas and some of the topics that I find interesting and that sometimes kind of trickle down into the show. So, and this is why Carmen still wears shoulder pads because <laughs> yes, of the 80s. Yes, exactly. Once, <laughs> once from the 80s, you always, you from, always the from the 80s. <laughs> anyway, so if you can find a copy of Anthony Huxley's Green Inheritance, it's, it's worth finding. Get it. Get it on Amazon. Anyway, we have to introduce our guest, Frank Pizzi. Um, he is the curator of horticulture and grounds at the Pittsburgh Zoo and PPG Aquarium. And I haven't laughed harder in a long time <laughs> at the than zoo. when I met Frank at the yeah, zoo. Yeah, we really laughed hard that night. Um, he has a Bachelor of Science in Ornamental Horticulture from Penn State University and has over 25 years experience in the field of zoological horticulture. Frank, welcome to the show. Well, good afternoon. Uh, no pressure there. <laughs> Huxley character is a hard act to follow. Thanks so much. <laughs> I know. I, big but, shoes, big shoes. I figured you probably know of him, you know, that whole Huxley family of <laughs> zoologists and, and madmen. Sure. Um, so sure. We're, we're on a first-name basis. And I, I, I also have to thank you guys <laughs> for the glowing report you gave to my adopted city after your visit here in August. Oh, oh good, good. Good, yes. We, we loved Pittsburgh. We did. We we. We really enjoyed eating there and 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 uh, botanizing around there. <laughs> and, and and what you guys have done on the river is so amazing. 
Yeah, it kind of puts oh, it, it kind of puts New York to shame, Frank. I mean, we really we have a lot of water too, and you and know, we're just now realizing the importance and the the usage of it. Yeah. but we also block it off from any use, whereas you can just step right oh, from I the know. streets. Onto a boat? Well, and- it wasn't that long ago that you couldn't get anywhere near the water here. It was all controlled by the steel mills and the railroads. Yeah, so right. come on down and bring some more New Yorkers and you can visit. Yeah, <laughs> we will. There's room for us. So, Frank, we have to ask you, because we, we ask this of every, everyone who's on the show, um, what turned you on to horticulture and, and to zoo horticulture in particular? Well, horticulture in general, just growing things, was through my father. One of the few things we shared was work in the vegetable garden. But then I also had some relatives who owned a nursery where I worked through high school and Mm. college. They're the ones who encouraged me to go to school for horticulture. And I was in the you know, the, in the curriculum for almost to the point of graduating, and one thing led to another, and I found myself here in Pittsburgh after a stint in Lancaster County working at a friend's shop, and a job came open for the aviary here in the city of Pittsburgh, then part of the Parks Department. And that was my first foray into working with plants and animals. I don't recommend working with birds at all. <laughs> yeah. That's another story. Um, so, and then the zoo was, it was undergoing its first major right. master plan uh, renovation, having not done anything for the first 100 years. And I was conscripted, literally, as a member of the Parks Department to come over to the zoo and do something with all the damn weeds, quote, end Mm. quote. So Mm. I've been here ever since. That was 1983. Wow. Well, I have to say, I mean, we posted a few photos um, of the zoo and of the aquarium, and it it is is not... A bunch of damn weeds now that's for sure um and a lot of a lot has transpired in the past 25 years and and i think people don't think about the habitat when they go to a zoo they they're there for the animals you know and they don't right. think about how much the habitat matters in creating an environment both for the visitors and for the actual species so can you can you describe that process because you've been involved obviously in creating many of those habitats what's the process like well, it, it's, it's evolved over, over the last 20, 25 years. I mean, if you remember back, zoos, when certainly when I was a kid, were just menagerie collections, you know, animals in cages, and you went and you looked, and it was sort of shock and awe, and they threw food at them, and then you went home. <laughs> yes, right. yes. Um, yeah. yes. Right, and you were sometimes throwing the food at them, which, of course, we discourage these days. But anyway, um, it's now the whole push for conservation education to help people understand the connectedness of living things that, you know, we are not, as much as we'd like to believe that, separate from the wild world around us. We are part of it. So when you come to a new zoo exhibit, if we've done our work, particularly the plant people who look at the big picture and have to understand uh, to a great extent everything they can about the animal that's being displayed, not just you know, what it eats and how big it is and how much room it needs to sleep and how high it can jump and all the stuff <laughs> that the animal people look at. Right. We look at why it's shaped the way it is, why its fur is the color that it is, how does it find its food, what does it eat, how does it interact with its environment. And these things have evolved together, so there is a reason that giraffes are tall and have a sticky tongue. There is a reason that, you know, many, many cats are striped or spotted. There is a reason that flamingos have 
feet the way they are and beaks the way they are because that's helped them helps them find food or hide from what they're going to eat until they can eat it. So it's all part of that bigger picture. And the plants around that environment and in that environment, we hope, offer some of those cues as to how things came to be the way they are. It's part of that bigger story. So when you're thinking of, say, an exhibit for the cats or the the monkeys, and and you're thinking about the layout of it and you know the rocks and the water and and the plants and how how do you how do you replicate plants that are not in that animal's normal habitat so like what i'm well, talking about is zone zone differences right here we are in western pennsylvania and a large portion of our zoo is the African savanna. Well, first problem, we <laughs> right. have a thing called winter, right. um, and they really don't. So what we do is look at how the plants from the savanna have evolved to deal with their particular climate, the temperature ranges, the water, the soil quality, all that sort of stuff. They, that gives us clues. You know, the plant families that live there live there because it works for them. They've managed to deal with those changes. Right. And a lot of plants in the savanna are either grasses, because they're deeply rooted, can deal with the long, dry period, or they're small, scrubby trees and shrubs that can also deal with the high heat, low soil uh, moisture, low soil fertility, mm-hmm. and lots of browsing. So they've evolved thorns and spines and all kinds of nasty things to cut down on all those animals. Think of all those herds of herbivores. Yes. They're chewing on stuff. The plants have to fight back. So either they use a poison, which we know many plants do, or they use thorns and spines and stuff like that. So we look at those adaptations and say, okay, what can we find in the plant world that will live here in western Pennsylvania that mimics those characteristics? Right. So we, we pick up things like you know the Washington hawthorn, which is native to our area. It's got thorns. It's a low, multi-stem, little edge tree. It's got glossy leaves, so it mimics that that adaptation that a lot of savanna plants have, a waxy coating. That right, comes down on right. Loss of moisture. So we pick those kinds of things. And, of course, grasses. Grasses occur all over the place. So we can pick up, you know, ornamental grasses or, if you can use the term, weed grasses that we use into a seed mix to make it look like the wild savanna grasses that we're trying to simulate. Right, and then you also have to think about the fact that the animals might browse on them, right? right. And no, the, not might; they will. They will. <laughs> I mean, do you have to replant all the time, Frank? Well, in some uh, yes in some and no. It depends on where we are. So okay. you know, there are some plants that we put into exhibits that we classify as sacrificial. Okay. Get, <laughs> yeah. Right. They're right. going to get chewed on. Um, but we also then have some ways of protecting them. Either we use a thing called hot grass, or we occasionally find plants that certain animals don't like for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of sort of smoke and mirrors where it looks like they can get at the plants, but they really can't get at the plants. Oh, so, yeah, there's a combination of things going on. Okay. It's magic, actually. I, it, it does feel like that sometimes because, I mean, it's certainly I, I have a kid, so I've been to the zoo a lot. Um, the Bronx Zoo mostly, and of right. course the New York Aquarium, and in New York we also have the Prospect Park Zoo, and they're very good at creating 
you know, these horticultural like ha-has, you know, where it looks yeah. like the animal can <laughs> exactly. get out, but they can't, you know, because you bring your kid there to see the animals, you know, like that's right. what they want to see. But I did grow up in the era and Alice too, where they were just in cages. It was, yeah. it was a menagerie. And in fact, I remember, I think it wasn't that many years ago when the, the, uh, the Bronx Zoo um, got rid of, so to speak, or relocated their African elephant. And it was kind of a sad right. day when yeah. we heard that because they had to make a decision, Frank, about costs versus the value yeah. of, you know, keeping this animal. I'm sure you've, you heard about that, you know, in, oh, yeah. and they just felt that that wasn't part of their, it wasn't part of the mission anymore to have elephants on display, you know, in, in, in that way. more and more. Yeah, I mean, there are more and more zoos, particularly inner-city zoos, mm -hmm. that really are landlocked. And to do certain animals justice, you need a certain amount of space. Or you need to have them displayed in family groups that could be kind of large. I mean, it's one thing having one elephant, but if you need to have seven, that's a whole other picture. So they have to make those hard choices. Can we do this and do it well, effectively, humanely, correctly, or can we not? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, I, I think the whole, the shift has, has definitely taken place from a collection of animals and look at us as a society and all these, you know, all these collections that we can assume uh, versus real conservation and um, right. real strategic work on preserving, you know. Right. A species rather a big than part of that, a collection. Right. A big part of that, getting that message across, right. is, is you, have to, you have to give people some sort of personal connection or experience with that animal, whatever it might be. I mean, it's one thing to watch a great piece with Richard Attenborough narrating in the background on <laughs> PBS. Yes. It's a whole nother thing if this animal, whatever it might be, a large tiger, comes up to you in front of a big glass window and sort of snorts or even turns around and raises its tail and sprays at you. That's, that's, an, that's an experience you won't easily forget. Right. right. Yes. I, I had an so, amazing experience um, at the Prospect. What was, no, it was at the Bronx Zoo, um, which is now called the New York uh, Wildlife. The, the, Wild, the World Wildlife Federation. It has a different name. It's not, it's not the it's Bronx not the Zoo, Bronx Zoo anymore. anymore. But it was a new um, gorilla baby had been born. Right. And they had this sort of amphitheater where you can sit and watch you know, uh -huh. them behind glass. And I was with my son at the time, who was maybe seven, eight, or nine years old. And you know, there, was a, there was a group of, of gorillas. And then at one mm -hmm. point, this is a moment that my son and I still talk about. I don't know if it was the mom or it was another family member uh, picked up the newborn baby and put it in front of us and showed us oh. the baby gorilla. Really? Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. and that's exactly what you were talking about, Frank, that that connection. And I think making a habitat that feels real, you know, yeah. um, I think is a is a big part of it. So our children are gonna have very different zoo experiences right. than Alice and I had. Yeah. You oh, know? Absolutely. Well actually one you of know, the if we sorry, go ahead. If Frank. we've done our work correctly, if we've done our work the way we should, that behavior, those more natural behaviors sort of show up more often. We give the visitor a chance to see how animals go about their day. They don't just sit in a cement block room and, you know, stare into oblivion. Oh. They go and do things. Yeah, it's like one flew they over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, actually, what I was going to say is one of the best zoo experiences I ever had was several years ago up in the Bronx. I mm-hmm. got to watch a black bear make his den for Ooh. winter, and it was phenomenal. He was he was ripping limbs off of a tree and carrying them <laughs> into this like deeper wooded rocky area and laying them down right. and literally making his bed and not that he right. hibernates because of course he's at the you know at the zoo right. and he's woken up to be fed every four hours <laughs> but, <laughs> but um but it was it was amazing to watch i mean when would you ever get to see that yeah you know and it was well, a- exactly and so there's some of those sacrificial plants we talk about but that's how i mean that's a lot of what we do is is provide material for those kinds of behaviors so they can be seen and experienced by anybody who's there. Right. And so that the animal can have kind of a normal, normal, up, you know, somewhat normal sense of life and right. in, in, in right. how, what he does and how he, how he reacts, you know? Well, um, we exactly. talked a lot about zoo, but we have to mention too, again, that there is also an aquarium um, right. associated right. with, um, with the pits, with, with the, the Pittsburgh zoo. Yeah. And, and one of the, most interesting things that we had talked about was um, kind of blending the the animal species with the um, with the plant species in that beautiful environment. It just looks so seamless, Frank. Can you tell us about that particular project? I, I just thought that was really well done. Well, thank you. That's that's our Amazon um, River's Edge exhibit. So yeah. the huge tank in front of that planted space is a freshwater tank full of the kinds of fish you would see if you, you know, dropped a net into a, the edge of the Amazon River. So the, the plant material that surrounds that um, is all selected to, in, in this case, we can actually use Amazon species that we've right. gathered from any number of places. Um, that, that's, that's an example of where uh, the design team, which includes lots of people, including plant people and engineers and and architects, and as you can imagine, a few egos flying around where you can... Oh, no. Frank, this is what we really no. wanted you to talk about. Start dishing right now. <laughs> so that's where, you know, everybody got together and, and begrudgingly or not realized that for this exhibit to really work and yeah. work well and talk about, you know, the diversity of life on the, in, that, in that rainforest habitat, I needed light and lots of it. Uh-huh. I needed to be able to mitigate the temperature and humidity into a range that was still workable for those tropical plants, but didn't make people pass out as they walk through. <laughs> right. I needed I needed to design. You know, my team had to design a soil mix because you're basically, whether you realize it or not, what you're looking at is a, a big concrete planter box because yeah. below that, below that planted space are other life support systems and the, the air conditioning and heating systems, and so it was a, it was sort of a case of creative compromise that got all those groups together. And I still remember the day when we were arguing with the engineers about how we're going to deliver the heated air into the space. Now, as I'm sure you know, hot, dry air and tropical plants is a nightmare waiting to happen because of, you know, plant growth and insects and all kinds of nasty stuff. So I wanted them to at least meet me halfway and deliver Mm -hmm. some of that hot air from the floor since hot air rises, hello, yeah. pushing out the public as they go around the outside edge, and a small amount of it coming in from the top. 
And, you know, they fought and fought and fought and fought. And so I basically had to say, well, you know, this is not a new concept. I mean, you know, hot air rises. They've been doing this in greenhouses <laughs> since Elizabeth was on the throne, Queen Elizabeth I. So we could do this. So we had a compromise. And, of course, there are, in fact, air vents that come out at your feet. And then there's uh, clear story windows we can open, just like in a greenhouse on the hot summer days. And so it actually, you know, it all works, and it's a beautiful exhibit. And we were also, because we're able to manage that environment, you know, the peaks of temperature and the peaks of humidity with some misting and stuff, we've been able to introduce into there a whole series of good bugs to fight our bad bugs. So our integrated pest management program there works like a charm. I'm really glad to hear that because that seems especially appropriate for the Amazon exhibit, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we can't, with all those fish and amphibians, we can't use... You can't spray. No. No. And we don't really use them through the zoo at all. So there we use some mild soap products. We actually use uh, some sprays of soybean oil, which is actually less of a concern than mineral oil, if any of Mm. it drifts into the tanks. Mm -hmm. But um, in the early days, we had to set up all kinds of bamboo poles and plastic sheeting to treat these plants as they went through that initial sort of winnowing out period until we got our our bugs organized. But now um, Susan is in there and monitors every week, and we've learned an amazing amount of stuff about how these little things interact, and it's been quite the learning experience. So how does one, when they're studying horticulture, does one – uh, like s- specific, is there in in horticulture schools? Is there a, a specialty a specialty for zoo horticulture? Because I think no, there should be. No, oh, there yet. isn't not yet. Yet the close, yeah, the closest we can come. I um, mean, you know, I've mentioned that I just returned from our, our national conference, and um, one of the things that we're doing for our membership is to create and provide certification classes mm. in in type of horticulture that zoo horticulturalists have to do or right. have to know. I mean, we, we all come from a lot of different backgrounds, various types of horticulture, but there really is no organized curriculum at any university to teach what we do. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've, we've finally gotten our membership to grasp, particularly at this last conference, is that we are the go-to people for zoo horticulture. We, we technically are writing the book. Yes. Those of us who've been involved since the early 80s, because that's when it really started to come in, the idea of, of, of landscape immersion, of habitat exhibits, really started to hit the ground running in the early 80s. Right. So you guys um, should write a book. And, you should write Yeah, a you should write the curriculum. Well, we, we, we're getting there. We have seven certification courses um, that are going to be going online. We have two of them on now, and we'll be going online shortly with the rest of them. And then we'll establish... Uh, uh, recertification credits for our members uh-huh. with programming at our conference and with some other online classes. So eventually, yeah, we'll we'll probably end up writing a book. Yeah, I think because I, I mean, uh, you know, something that I actually looked into before I kind of made the decision to go into the design and gardening world was museum mm-hmm. studies. And really, that's what you're doing is is ec- exhibition design yes um, right, for cultural institutions and museums and you know everybody just thinks oh the the silly gardener what do they know well you know you're talking about research 
you know, among the best of the best for rainforest species and symbiotic relationships, you know, who better than the plant people? Well, we have to take a break on that note. Uh, Frank, hang on the line. We're going to take a short break and we'll bring you back to talk some more about animals and plants. Stay tuned to We Dig Plants. program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi. <laughs> Tag, you're it. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking with Frank Pizzi. He's the director of horticulture at the, uh, or the curator of horticulture and grounds at the Pittsburgh Zoo um, and the Pittsburgh Aquarium. Um, before we left, we were just talking about the idea of exhibit design within zoos and how horticulture plays a role in that and kind of getting that discipline into design programs and hort schools. So, um, Frank, I, I, how, how could one learn more about that? About what we do? We have a, the Association of Zoological Horticulture has a website okay. that okay. talks about what we do. It's AZH. Dot O-R-G. A-Z-H. And you mentioned that you just came back from the conference. Where, where was the conference this year? Uh, the conference this year was at Galveston, the mm-hmm. barrier island of Galveston, Texas. We were at Moody Gardens. Oh, oh yeah. beautiful. I know Moody Gardens very well. How nice. That is a, that's a great place to have it. So yeah, we'll, it, was, it was nice. It was very nice. It's so, nice, especially because, you know, the weather's getting a little chilly up here, so you got to have an extension of summertime. <laughs> yeah. We did. We did. That was a really a, a, a very nice plus because, uh, you know, Pittsburgh can be a little rough in the winter still. Right, right. And it's an international organization, right? Or, or is it just the United States? Well, we are mostly United States. We have, a, 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 if you will, a sister organization in Europe, mm-hmm. and uh, we do have members from England and um, the uh, Netherlands and Canada, mm-hmm. the country next door. Uh-huh. Um, we're hoping, yeah, we're hoping to get up to Cinnaboyne Park, which is doing some amazing new exhibitry in 2016 or 2017. Where is that, that park? It's sort of near Manitoba. Oh, oh okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little chilly, but... That's okay. <laughs> well, maybe you'll go in August. Yeah. So tell us. Yeah, we are. We're going to go in August. Exactly. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so tell us what 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 um, 
What did you get from the conference this year? What was the kind of takeaway that you that you thought was most useful that you can put into practice or well, there were two things. One, one is, is a good thing, and one is a not-so-good thing. The not-so-good thing is that, that our organization, which started with some of us old farts in the early 80s, who are rapidly approaching the point of retirement, and there's that sort of turnover to the next generation. And I don't know about you, but my experience with lots of gardeners, lots of plant people, is that they would much, much rather be digging in the dirt or talking over the back fence about plants than they are getting involved in politics or business models or planning <laughs> for the future. Right. So yes. Our organization is a membership-driven organization. It's a volunteer organization. So it's, it's, it's turning over the reins to this next crowd. So that, that's been a bit of a challenge, but they're rising to the occasion. The other, the good thing, though, is that I think we have finally sort of reached that. Um, we've been doing a lot of work lately with our program to beef it up and offer as travel dollars become tighter all the time, particularly for not-for-profits, with most most of us are, uh, to really beef up the quality and the content of our program to make it easier for managers to send their staff to learn new things and, you know, figure out how the magic works. Um, networking is our, probably our biggest plus, because since they have no reference books, we are the living reference book. So we're doing more at our conferences to have sort of organized panel discussions to mm-hmm. share that information back and forth to people in the room. And it's been very, very successful. I think it's finally got everybody to realize that, in fact, we are the experts in the field and we are the ones to to go to for this information. And if we can just convince all of the rest of the design team at zoos across <laughs> the country, then we'd be great. We'd be just We'd be great. Do you think there's a real um, kind of separation, dichotomy between the design end and the horticulturalists, like, you know, the people that are really doing the work on the ground? Um, there is still. Depending on which facility you're in, yes. Um, there's still a, a bit of a lag behind um, getting a place at that design table. As I'm sure you can imagine yes. getting the plant people there at the beginning can right, really so that have it's an impact an on the quality of what you put out and how many false steps you take. Um, I think as gardeners, we tend to have a longer view, sort of a bigger perspective. I mean, not, not to disparage the animals at all, but a tiger is a tiger is a tiger. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. They, they all grow at a certain rate. They all get to a certain size. They weigh a range of weight. You know, they, it, there's... It's like architects and sofas, if you will. <laughs> Please elaborate. Well, I was actually just thinking, I know some architects that are tigers. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they, they do, they do but, grow know, we, we, at a certain rate. Plants, but even within certain families, even in yeah. the same family, there's a huge diversity in shape and size. Yes. And they respond to their environment and they grow right. differently. And, you know, we know what they need and they're living things, which is obviously the first hurdle to get over with some people, that they are, in fact, living things. So yeah, they, we uh, I think we bring a lot to the mix, and 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 many of us have gotten finally to that point in Good. the table uh, at the table, and part of the goal of AZH is to get everybody there. Yeah. We Alice and I encounter that too. I mean, and, and we're dealing with landscape projects uh, as part right. of as part of sometimes a general renovation of a building or a home, and a mm-hmm. lot of times we're brought in 
at the very end, oh, here's the rectangle that you're intended to plant. And we're like, what? Right. You know? You know and I always you know? say, you're a bunch of monkeys and you don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted the opportunity to say ungulate at a meeting. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> and I don't think I can say it to any of the architects I know. <laughs> Anyway, Frank. So, well, what, one more question, Frank. Um, <laughs> are is there? Do you, are you seeing a lot of young people kind of enter your field, or is that something that you guys are striving to look for? Well, actually, we we've been watching that for the last five years, and each of the last five annual conferences, us old duffers are taking note of how many new young full of promise faces that we see showing up. And we see, we're beginning to see a trend, which is good. Um, we're also beginning to see many more women come into the zoo horticulture field. I mean, zoos for years were dominated by men. And now they're, particularly the animal care staff and the veterinarian staff, there's a big tipping mm. over onto women taking over many, 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 many more roles. That's in interesting. The zoo world, which, yeah, it's a good thing. So, um, we, we're beginning to see, we, we, we're seeing, at the very least, we're more than replacing each of us who fade out from old age and arthritis and, you know, all <laughs> right. that sort of stuff. Right. That's good. That's, so, yeah, we're, that's, we're, that's we're good. encouraged. We're encouraged. Good. That's good, because it's another field, another area where people coming out of Hort School can focus on and specialize in, you know? Right. So well, and the, the plus the plus is that in in particularly in zoo horticulture, you really do get a chance to wear pretty many as much as many hats as you wish mm-hmm. in in the big world that is plants. I mean, it's a big world from from trees to annuals to tropicals to IPM to hardscapes to simulating habitats to building fake rocks and right. designing feeding stations that don't look like feeding stations. You know, right. Right, it's, it's, and I love that aspect of it—the creative yeah. aspect of it—and yeah. the exhibit design, right, is really. And I liked Alice's point about it's it's museum studies in a way. You know, it should we really yeah. be part of that? Yeah, you know? and I think there's gonna, right. as unfortunately as we as more and more species do become endangered, these places are going to be even more important, even more necessary. And, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. well, we don't want to um, we don't want to end on a, a you know a negative note. So, Frank, we we do have, because Alice and I are, are goofy by nature. Um, we do we <laughs> we do have to ask you about you know um, you know just some some stories and, and questions. Um, <laughs> Give us, give us some dirt. Give us some dirt. Uh, we love we love dirt. dirt. Some zoo dirt. Um, we we. We have a we we really like to know because um, we do get asked goofy questions as gardeners. We like to know what kind of goofy questions you've been asked as as a curator at the zoo. Well, yeah. there's two that come to mind. One one of them was from a very long time ago, but it's 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 really just a gem. When I when I first started here, there were still some very traditional plantings, and that included some some embankments of naturalized daffodils. And I, shortly after my arrival, I quickly gotten the reputation for being less than tolerant of people who damaged my plant collection. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I got a call from our front gate that I needed to come down immediately on the radio. So I trundled down there. And there's this dear sweet lady with an armful of our daffodils oh. requesting a bag. <laughs> I wanted to know if I could get her a bag. No, she <laughs> didn't. 
Yes, did, I hope did. you locked her up in the lion cage. <laughs> Frank, what did you do to her? Did you lock her in the lion cage? I, I, well, I, 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 I was much younger then, so I was more tolerant. I smiled sweetly and, and took the daffodils from her, I was, asked her to kindly go away and not to pick things when she came back. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, wow. well, you know it takes a while. We, we it takes a while people to get the picture. I mean, we still have people, believe it or not, who will ask me. For instance, you know, they'll sweep their arm across this entire landscape and say, "Well, what do you do with all this in the winter? <laughs> what do you do with your lawn in the winter? <laughs> what?" <laughs> The whole landscape. You know, they just sweep their hand because they think we... I'd say, well, we pack it all on a train and we go to Florida. <laughs> no. It's really part of the Barnum and it's Bailey Circus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they tend to be usually quite sincere. But, I mean, you know, you just don't know. You think, surely she doesn't really mean that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. But, so I, you just roll with it. The, and and yeah. it's it's public, you know, so, like, you just never know what... Yes. It's like people who work in botanic gardens. They have yeah, to deal with, yeah. you know, that's why they put the interns out there, you know, <laughs> to deal with it. <laughs> because, you know, they're, well, they're young and they're, they're more tolerant, you know. So they tell are. Us, they tell are. Us, tell us. You see, I'm, I'm, well, I'm well past 50 now, and so my, my, my screens are beginning to get big holes in them. So I have to be much more diligent. So my staff tends to keep me out of those situations. <laughs> Away from the public. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, yeah. A, tell us a plant and animal combination that you've used that was most surprising to you. That worked. That worked. Well, we, as you can well imagine, and this will give you a chance to use that ungulate word, <laughs> in, in our exhibit yard where we have um, a whole lovely herd of springbok and a couple of blessbok and two ostriches, which, by the way, are not very intelligent animals. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> keeping any kind of turf under a captive collection of hoofstock that also eat the grass is a huge challenge for us in the zoo world. But when that exhibit was built, the architects had the brilliant idea of establishing that yard with under drainage that mirrored that of a soccer field. Oh, okay. So through the years, with some careful selection of the right grass mix and having the right selection of animals on there. There's a question of, of exhibit load, if you will. How many yes. animals can you have in this space and not have it look like a moonscape? So we've been very fortunate to have turf underneath our ungulates for the last 20 years. Oh, that's cool. That was, that was a real plus. And, you know, the other thing that we always guard against is the possibility of plant poisons. And, you know, animals from Africa don't really know, we thought, plants from western Pennsylvania, so there's certain things that you need to be careful they don't get at. What we found, what I've found, and I'll speak for myself and not get the veterinarians too excited, is that through the years we've found that animals tend to be pretty damn smart about what they should and shouldn't eat. Yeah, yeah. Unless, yeah, unless of course, they're bored out of their mind and they nibble on things because they have nothing else to do. Yeah, rhododendron, so hydrangeas, yeah, right. Taxes, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Well, Frank, uh, this time has just uh, absolutely flown by. I wish we could talk. I <laughs> we might could, call we could you t- and <laughs> just keep talking to you on my own. So, <laughs> tell, us what's, tell us what's happening at the zoo in the next couple of months so we can kind of entice more people to come down. What, what uh, new exhibits or programs are, are happening? Well, we're just, we're just now starting a new construction uh, that will include a 
pretty fabulous new restaurant, which will then lead into that won't come on. The restaurant will come online in the spring. Hmm. Um, we have the next phase of exhibits, and the last piece of land we have in our little landlocked facility here will be an area called the islands where we'll be exhibiting Philippine crocs and uh, saimangs and this crazy warty pig with a mop of bluish hair, which is wow. way cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Maybe he's punk. Maybe he's a punk pig, right? <laughs> well, there you go. He'll be right, he'll be right near um, clouded leopards, which are absolutely gorgeous. I mean, just too gorgeous for words. So, yeah, that'll be a fun spot. So there'll be lots of water and lots of different levels because we're going up. You know, we're in Pittsburgh, so we have a lot of hills. So we have to sort of mm. get people to march around and get up at higher elevations without, you know, yeah. straining them or violating ADA regulations. So it'll be an interesting uh, mix of going around the bend and going up. And it'll be nice. So we hope to have that by midsummer of 20. Oh, that's exciting. Well, you'll have to keep yeah. us in the loop. And I want to I wanna share... Um, a little experience I had at the Pittsburgh Zoo with the oh. audience. Alice will, Alice will remember this fondly. Um, it, it definitely is burned into my memory. My husband, um, you know, collects those flattened penny things. Frank, you know what I'm oh, talking yeah, about? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so one of the, one of my objectives whenever I go somewhere without him is to make sure that I bring back, you know, these flattened pennies uh, to him. So we were just about to go on the tour of the green roof, this beautiful green roof, which is on top of the aquarium building, right? Right. And that there happens to be a penny machine right outside right. <laughs> the exhibit on the green roof entrance. And of course, I I was like a kid in a candy store. I was putting in my money and, and the, the, the docent who was giving the tour said, get away from that penny machine. <laughs> <laughs> because we could only go in small groups. Right. So I was like caught with like almost my hand in the cookie jar. Yeah. She said, Carmen, you can come get the penny later. Now it's time to go on the tour. We have to go on the green roof. And I really, I said, you know, I really must love my husband to be humiliated like that publicly. <laughs> um, so we, it was great. We got to see the green roof and then I, I did get my penny. So these, these visitor amenities, Frank, I just want to tell you are very important to some people. <laughs> Don't take away the penny machines. <laughs> <laughs> we know. Trust me, we know. They are amazingly popular. We actually have three of them on Pro. Yeah. Penny, penny crushers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and, and apparently not just five-year-olds are into them. <laughs> Right. So if you need me to send you the two other styles, I'll be happy to do that. Oh, Frank, I, you have Christmas is coming. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for Frank, being on the show. Frank, you have an amazing job, and thank you for sharing some of the uh, highlights of, of what you do in the industry that you represent. And what is, the, uh, what is the Pittsburgh Zoo's website so we can put it out there into the... It is just pittsburghzoo.org. Great. Great. .org, yeah. Well, we so highly we recommend... We revamped the whole website, so come on over. Great. Frank, thanks so much for, for being on the show and, and giving us so much of your time. We'll come and visit you next time we're in Pittsburgh. That'd be great. Thanks Happy for having gardening. me. Happy gardening. Thanks Thank so much. You. Thank you all for listening to, to We Dig Plants. The show is produced and engineered by Jack Inslee. Please remember to join our Facebook pa fan page. Groundworks Inc. We dig plants to stay current on our projects and upcoming shows. There might be pictures of ungulates this week. Um, and you can win free stuff. So thanks for listening. See you in the garden.
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.